Please open up your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided or you got off the back table, that begins on page 855. To be a Christian is to be someone who's waiting. More part of the reason that we had uh, our sister Betty read that passage from Second Peter is to remind us of that. We are waiting for something. And we see in that passage how saints of old were waiting for something. Uh, they were waiting for the, for the coming of God to save them. Uh, we've seen that in Christ, and yet we still wait. We wait for the new heavens and new earth often while we suffer. So what do Christians need who are waiting? Well, one thing you could say that we need is certainty. We need a certainty about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that brings us this morning to the Gospel of Luke. Luke says in his opening introduction that he writes for the sake of certainty for believers. So this morning we're beginning a series through this Gospel. I'm not sure if it'll be the whole Gospel or part of the Gospel, but it'll take us through the first quarter of next year. And we're going to begin this morning by reading just these first four verses as we start to look at this first chapter of Luke. So read with me Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So just like the introductions and in, in books we would read today, Luke starts off wanting to make his case about why this book's important, why what he's about to say is important, and why he wrote it. Now, he doesn't go about this in the way that a modern author would, but he does so in a way that his contemporaries would have understood. He shows us how important these things are by saying that uh, many people have endeavored to write about them. It's not just his own kind of weird interest. This is something that's, that's rightly garnered the attention of many. Many of those first eyewitnesses and, and teachers have taken it upon themselves to write their accounts. And he, he draws a special attention to these things that have been accomplished among us. These things are worth paying attention to. So he's saying we should, we should read this book because these things have been accomplished and many have written about them, and now Luke is using his skill and his talents and his careful attention to produce an orderly account of these things. So he's kind of advertising his contribution. You know, you've got all these things out there. Here's the orderly account that will help you make sense of them. And finally, he addresses this book to this most excellent Theophilus. This was a common name in Luke's day, so we can't pinpoint who this was. The fact that he's called most excellent probably means he was uh, an official of some rank in the, in the Roman world. And by addressing his book to this important official, he wants both Theophilus and those who would have known Theophilus 
to pay attention to what Luke has to say so that they can gain certainty about what God has done. So in this intro, Luke tells us why the book's important, and he also tells us a bit about the content, what's going to be included in this book. He says he's focused on this narrative, this story of things that have been accomplished among us. Now, nowhere in this introduction does he mention God's name or Jesus' name, but clearly that framework of things that have been accomplished is referring to what God has done through Jesus. The things God has accomplished through Jesus, born, living, dying, and resurrected. These things have been accomplished in verse 1. And then he says, these things have been taught to Theophilus. So there are these things. You never thought, think that things is an important word, but in this, this, these short verses, it is. These things have been accomplished, and now they've been taught, and we need to be certain about them. So Luke wants us to know that some things have happened, that God did, and that these things call for a response from those who hear about them. This isn't like academic history or just a, a tidbit of information. These are things that have happened and have been taught. And he wants his readers to have certainty about them. He wants those who are waiting on the Lord to know for certain what God has done through Christ and how what God has done can save sinners. He wants the people who read this to be convicted about what Jesus did and convicted that they can have salvation and life by faith in Jesus. And so as we read this morning, this first chapter, we're meant to get that same certainty for ourselves, to see what God did, and to know that by faith in what God has done, we can have life. So here in chapter 1, we're going to look at three things that Luke wants us to see. First, that the Lord restores what his people are missing. The Lord restores what his people are missing. Second, we'll see that the Lord provides what no one expected. The Lord provides what no one expected. And then third, that those who wait on the Lord will not be disappointed. Those who wait on the Lord will not be disappointed. So first, the Lord restores what his people are missing. Second, the Lord provides what no one expected. And third, Those who wait on the Lord will not be disappointed. So let's look at this first point. The Lord restores what his people are missing. To make this first point, Luke doesn't start with Jesus. And perhaps this is because he's an orderly historian, right? He's going to go back a step and give us the background. And he begins with this priest, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth. Even though we're in the New Testament, it may be helpful to think of Zechariah and Elizabeth as as two of the last of the faithful Old Testament saints, right? When when Zechariah is ministering in the the temple and getting this vision that we're going to read about, he's doing so not knowing that Jesus is about to come. He's doing so the way that his priestly forebears would have done, faithfully ministering in the temple, But we also find that like other Old Testament saints, Zechariah and Elizabeth are both childless and very old. So let's read the first part of this story, chapter 1, verses 5 through 25 of Luke. 
In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered in him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when, this time, when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. This is God's word. As we begin to look at the story, I want you to notice kind of a basic outline, because it's going to help us with the next part of our passage as well. So we have the angel appearing in the person to whom he appears is, is struck with fear. The angel appears to Zechariah, and Zechariah is afraid. Then the angel makes an announcement, and Zechariah asks a question. The angel responds, and Zechariah departs to his house. And then the story concludes with Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, speaking, and speaking by faith. That structure will help us Next is we look at the story of Mary, but it also helps us here focus both on what the angel Gabriel has to say and how Zechariah, Elizabeth, and everyone else in the story responds to what the angel said. Both are crucial for understanding this chapter. So with that in the back of your mind, let's return to the beginning. Luke begins by telling us of Zechariah and Elizabeth's righteousness and their barrenness. They were faithful to obey the Lord, but they have no child. And at this point, it would seem that having a child is impossible because of their old age. So as the story begins, it's an account of loss, right? It shows us a, a family that's righteous, following the Lord, 
But something is missing. Something is not as it should be. As I said when I introduced the passage about Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see a very similar story unfolding here. That Hannah was barren but faithful. She prayed for a child and was granted it. And she prayed for this child in the midst of this barrenness within Israel's life as a whole, when they were far from God and not hearing his word, when there were corrupt priests. The word was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision, we read in 1 Samuel 3, verse 1. So again, one of the things we see that Samuel does, the birth of Samuel, is God killing two birds with one stone, right? He, he, solves, he solves Hannah's barrenness problem. And he solves Israel's word problem, right? He, he, he provides a child for Hannah, and he speaks through the prophet Samuel. And so the, what I think we see in 1 Samuel is a, is a foreshadowing of the same thing that God is doing here through the prophecy about John. He's solving Elizabeth and Zechariah's barrenness problem while also solving Israel's word and faith problem. We catch a glimpse of this in what the angel Gabriel has to say to Zechariah in verse 13, or beginning in verse 13. He says, Do not be afraid. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And then verse 14 says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So note that. It's personal. Joy and gladness for you, Zechariah. But it's corporate. Many will rejoice. And he goes on, For he will be great before the Lord, He must not drink wine and strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him, that's the Lord, in the spirit of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this birth of John is not just about Zechariah and Elizabeth's problem. It's, a, it's, it's about the whole nation's joy and gladness. It's about the whole nation's repentance. Right? That's the subtext, isn't it? That the hearts of Israel are in a bad way. That they're turned away from God. That they are disobedient. That they don't love righteousness. They're against God. And the seeming hopelessness of Elizabeth being barren in her old age, it's a symbol for the seeming hopelessness of all Israel. What hope have God's people when their hearts are far from the Lord, when they've forsaken the Lord their God? It's very notable that as Gabriel prophesies to Zechariah, he uses the words of Malachi chapter 4, verse 6 to describe the work of John. And if we read verse five, verses four, 5 and 6 of that chapter, we'll get a bigger sense of what's going on there. The Lord says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is where Israel is when Luke chapter 1 opens. They're in this place of being at risk of utter destruction. The great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. Will they be prepared? Will they turn away from their sin? Gabriel's big point is there is hope. There is hope for Israel turning because I'm sending John. 
Because John is going to be born full of the Holy Spirit. And the time for judgment is not yet come because John is going to come. And through John's ministry, many are going to turn from their sin. Many are going to turn to the Lord. There's a promise that God is going to restore the righteousness and the faith that Israel has been lacking. Friends, do you see how merciful and loving God is to his people? We're talking about centuries of patience that God has had with them. Centuries of wrath they've stored up for themselves. And yet here, God announces an opportunity for repentance. God proclaims his love for them by sending, him, sending them someone to preach his word to them and call them to repentance. Have you ever considered that's a way that God shows his love to you? By preaching to you through his word and preachers like me, proclaiming his word to you and giving you an opportunity for repentance. So when you're caught in your sin and exposed, we usually think that's a really bad thing to be avoided. And, and sin is something to be avoided. But having our sin exposed, having it come to light, having God convict us of it, it's God's love to us. God was loving his people by sending them this prophet to turn them from their sin and back to God. Do you know God's grace and righteousness in calling you to repentance? What is God calling you through his word to repent of? In Israel's life, righteousness and faith were lacking. Is that true in your life? Is there some area that you see in our church that righteousness and faith are lacking? Well, how, how could we be restored from that? The restoration comes as we hear God's word and are convicted of our sin and we repent of our sin and trust in Christ. As you pray for yourself, as you pray for each other, pray that God's word would be clear, that we would hear it and submit to it and repent that we would be convinced that the path to joy and gladness, the path to rejoicing, runs through repentance of sin and faith in what God has done through Jesus. Now, sadly, in the story, Zechariah does not respond in faith. In many ways, this first part of the story is kind of a dud of an ending, right? Zechariah is silenced, cursed with silence for his disobedience. As you read the story and you first read Zechariah's question, it's, it's not really clear that that's an unfaithful question to ask, how will I know this? I mean, perhaps we can say, well, you know, Zechariah, if you're in the temple, you know, and you're ministering at the Lord's altar, and you see an angel, that may be all the sign you should need. You shouldn't ask for another one. But on the surface, it's not clear that just to ask for a sign is sinful. Others have asked for signs. But Gabriel, speaking with God's authority, tells Zechariah, you didn't believe what I said. But everything that's spoken, that I've spoken to you, will be fulfilled in their time. And so because Zechariah didn't believe what was spoken to him, he can't speak. He goes mute. He won't be able to speak until all these things are fulfilled. So Zechariah is not able to respond at this point to this news. Not able to respond in faith. We're left kind of wanting something more. 
We just hear that Zechariah leaves. He goes home. He departs from the temple. And first, there's this kind of comic scene of these people going, what's going on? And Zechariah trying to make signs. And the crowds discern something, something important has happened. So this first part of the story raises a question. When we hear God's promises proclaimed, this opportunity to repent, that God's going to do something and call us to repentance, what, what is our response? Do we believe? Do we believe what God's spoken to us? You know, when we hear God telling us what's right and wrong, are we convinced that, that God has a right to tell us that? When we hear God offering forgiveness, do we believe him? Do we believe that God restores those who repent? Do we believe? Zechariah didn't believe. And so he's not able to respond as the way he will at the end of the passage. But somebody does respond. We get Elizabeth's response. We find that Elizabeth did conceive as God had prophesied. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth cites these words that are cited in a few places in the Old Testament by different people, both individuals like Rachel and then about corporate Israel in Joshua chapter 5. So these words kind of work on two levels. Elizabeth's shame has been removed, but there's also this hint that Israel's shame has been removed or is going to be removed through the ministry of this baby in her womb. Elizabeth believes what was spoken to her through her mute husband. Now, how she came to, to understand what she came to understand, we don't know. Clearly, she, she knows what the, the baby's name is supposed to be at the end. So, you know, did, did Zachariah get out the writing tablet at that point and tell her what was going on? We don't know. But we just hear Elizabeth proclaiming her wonder that the Lord has looked upon her. He's taken away the reproach of her barrenness. We see that through his Holy Spirit-filled prophet, John will be the answer to Elizabeth's prayer, but also he will turn God's people away from their sin, and he will prepare Israel for his own coming. And that's where we turn next. The Lord provides what no one expected. We see one of the things that brings this chapter together is the time stamps on Elizabeth's pregnancy. So right now, at the end of verse 25, we're through month five of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Right? We had a whirlwind trip through month five. But now, in chapter, I mean verse 26, we get in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. So we see this chapter is a unit, and we're going to get some more timestamps similar to that as the chapter goes on. But as we read this passage, beginning in verse 26, remember our pattern. Right? The angel Gabriel appears and strikes fear. The angel makes an announcement, and a question is asked. The angel responds, and then someone departs to Zechariah's house. And then we hear words from Zechariah's wife. Elizabeth. So pay attention to that as we read, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, and of of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. We'll stop there before we go on. But I want you to see that as we come to Gabriel's appearance to Mary, we're armed with some new information about these angel people appearances and how they go, right? We know, for one, that Gabriel's words are very important. And so we kind of have our sense heightened of how Mary is going to respond to this announcement. We also know that the baby John was one great before the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit. Even in the womb, it says that about John. And so this revelation about John kind of primes us to compare John and Jesus, the baby that is going to be born to Mary. But what's most striking is the things that are are different. Zechariah and Elizabeth were of the priestly line of Aaron. Mary is of Mary's betrothed to someone who's of the royal line of Joseph. I mean of David. Elizabeth was an old and barren woman. Mary is a young betrothed virgin. So with Elizabeth, the focus was on this godly woman who had something in her life that was missing. But no one's looking at Mary and saying, you know what you're missing is a pregnancy, right? With, with Elizabeth, John is, a, is, a, is the solution to a problem. With Mary, the pregnancy is a problem, right? What are we going to do with this? And that's really more of a, a Gospel of Matthew story. But what I want you to see is that Mary's story kind of flips everything on its head. Instead of the Lord restoring something missing to Israel, the Lord is doing something brand new here, something no one expected. Now, I say no one expected it, but if you were a careful reader and you know your Bible, you might think, well, Gabriel just told us John will prepare the way of the Lord, and and this is the Lord, so this all makes sense. Everything is right as we would have expected it. You're right to say that, but also wrong. And and you're wrong because when Malachi promised this prophet who would prepare the day of the Lord, it's clear that the day of the Lord that was coming was a day of judgment. Right? It's the day that sounds a lot more like what Betty read to us, a day of of destruction. That's the the day of the the awesome day of the Lord usually evokes those images of, of the Lord coming upon his people in judgment. So it's not really the day that we're expecting, right? When, when John comes, we're not sure what exactly to expect. Repentance before the judgment? 
I don't think anyone would have expected that the coming of God would look like this. No one would have expected it any more than they would have expected a virgin to conceive and bear a child. Now Gabriel's word to Mary first is that the son she will bear, she will bear called Jesus, is going to be called the Son of the Most High, and that he will be given the throne of his father David, and that he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. This first promise is not an explicit promise of a divine son. It's close. Son of the Most High is getting there, but you could, you could talk about Israel's kings in that way. What, what's first highlighted is that this is going to be a king like David. So we've got this great prophet like Elijah, now we've got a king like David. We're getting the, the team together, right? And he's going to inherit the promises that God made to David, and the promise of sitting on David's throne forever. But it's not until Mary asks her question, how can this be, you know, I've not known a man, that we get the answer, the full answer of who Jesus is. Look at verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now contrast this with John. Gabriel said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. That's pretty amazing, but not as amazing as this. The Holy Spirit coming upon her. The overshadowing work of the Most High. Now, there's a lot of mystery in what that means, but the result is that this child in Mary's womb is called something that John is not called. Holy, the Son of God. This is the great unexpected miracle that God takes to himself human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. This baby will inherit none of Adam's sin, this baby's flesh was not created by the natural process of human procreation, but by a special work of God in the womb of Mary, by God's grace and power. By God's grace and power, the God who sent Gabriel to Mary in Nazareth is going to become a baby inside her womb. And this is the reason for sinful Israel to have hope. Right? The hope of Israel is not just that John will come and prophesy, it's that God will come in Jesus. That God will come and take on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ came to die in the place of sinners and rise again from the dead, and that he ascended to heaven, where he's given a name above every name. It's because of that that barren Israel has the hope of life. It's because of that that unrighteous sinners have the hope of forgiveness and restoration to God. It's through faith in God's unexpected, undeserved grace that comes through Jesus Christ that sinners find life. That's the hope that God is offering. So with the prophecy to Mary, the picture is much closer to being completed. It's not just a prophet that we need to tell us to repent. We need one to come and live the perfect life, to take our place on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins. And we receive this forgiveness by faith 
in this word that's proclaimed through Jesus. And Mary shows us that faith, right? In verse 38, she responds to the angel, not like mute Zechariah, by saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You ever think of the faith it takes to say that? Despite the shame and stigma of being unwed and betrothed and pregnant, she embraces and rejoices in God's plan for her. We also see that Mary's faith is declared by Elizabeth. So again, remember our pattern. Zechariah left the temple and departed to his house. Well, right after, right after Mary says this response, what does she do? She departs to the house of Zechariah where she greets Elizabeth, right? And then Elizabeth has a word to say, right? The next person to speak in the story is Elizabeth. And Elizabeth turns into a prophet, right? She's filled with the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 41. And then she says in verse 42 to Mary, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit, recognizes the miracle of the incarnation in her midst. Mary, she declares, is the mother of her Lord. The Lord who spoke to Zechariah and the Lord who spoke to Mary through the angel Gabriel now is somehow in the womb of Mary. And even John in the womb, who himself we know is already filled with the Spirit, leaps because he seems to recognize Mary and Jesus. And Elizabeth pronounces Mary blessed, both because the favor the Lord shone upon her, but also because she believed. The word was proclaimed to her from the Lord through Gabriel, and she believed that what the Lord said would come true. She was fully convinced that God was able to do what he said, to indwell her by the Holy Spirit. Mary shows us what faith is. To believe God's word. And to believe that as God pronounces his word, God will keep his word. God will do what he said in his word. That God will keep that promise through the baby that's growing in her womb. Do you have Mary's faith? Are you convinced that through faith in Jesus, the God-man, that your sins can be forgiven, that you can be saved. That's what Mary was convinced of. And she shows us that in the song that she sings, beginning in verse 46. Let's read that. <clears throat> Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring, for, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So Mary confesses God is a savior. She confesses that he scatters the proud, the proud but he exalts the humble. And she rejoices that God has remembered his merciful promises to Abraham. What does Mary's song tell us? Well, it tells us she believes that God has kept his promises through what he's doing inside her body, through the coming of the Christ child. Mary's song tells us that God is a God of mercy and that God reveals his mercy and his holiness in his coming in Jesus. Mary's confession of faith is that the baby in her womb is the Savior, the long-awaited Savior, and that those who fear the Lord are saved by him. Those who trust in Jesus and humbly receive him are those who are saved by God. So if John's role is to prepare the way by calling us to repentance, then Jesus' role is to save us by pouring out God's love on us through the cross. Mary believed in the miraculous mercy of God that she was this special part of. But that's, that's not really the focus of her prayer. Her focus is not what a special person I am, right? She, she does rejoice that she's favored, but she rejoices what God is doing in saving his people, in keeping his promises, in showing his mercy through Jesus. In Jesus the Lord does what we could never have expected him to do. Right? John comes showing us our sin, and we think, we are sinners. We need to repent. We're far from God. And Jesus comes to take the punishment that we deserve for being far from God, for sinning. Jesus comes to do what only the God-man could do, to die in the place of sinners and pay for our sins. So the prophet John identifies our sin. Jesus identifies with us. He becomes a sinner for us. He pays for it so that we can be forgiven and have new life in Christ. We can have this by faith in him. So this section kind of has the same closing question as the previous one. Do you believe? Do you believe what God is speaking are you confident in what God has done through Jesus and that salvation only comes in Christ's name? One of the difficult things as we find as we believe, as we follow Christ, is that this faith is not always immediately rewarding. As we began, we said we're people who wait. We believe, and yet we suffer. We believe... And yet we fight against sin. This has always been true of God's people. It's certainly true for righteous Elizabeth. She obeyed the Lord and she suffered. And despite her righteousness, she lived to this old age without a child, waiting. Elizabeth and Zechariah's life was a life of righteous waiting on the Lord. And this brings us to the conclusion of our story, that those who wait on the Lord are not disappointed. 
the last part of our passage kind of ties a bow on this story as we see God keep all of his promises to those who have been waiting on him. Let's read beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So we see Luke continuing his structure, right? He's gotten us through month nine. Now the day has come for Elizabeth to give birth. What's striking about these verses we just read is that Elizabeth and Zechariah are kind of sidelined. Right? They have their parts, they say some words, but the neighbors, the nosy neighbors, are really, really active in this, right? First, they, they hear of the Lord's mercy and rejoice with her in John's birth. And that's a fulfillment of the prophecy, right? They have opinions about what he should be named, right? They're like, what are you talking about, Elizabeth? You can't call him John. And then when Jack, Zachariah confirms his name is John, they all wonder. They're amazed. And then they respond to the opening of Zechariah's mouth with fear. This kind of is a precursor of what the shepherds will do in chapter 2. They spread the story throughout all the hill country of Judea. And those they tell treasure these things up in their hearts. So we're kind of being prepared. And throughout, Luke, throughout these first few chapters of the birth of Christ, we kind of get this, this chorus of people who are kind of there watching and waiting in the wings and and rejoicing along as the story is told. The picture here is almost a a complete fulfillment of of Gabriel's words. John is born, Israel rejoices, Zechariah's mouth is opened, and those who wait on the Lord are not disappointed. I wonder if you struggle with the fear that you're living the life of faith in vain. You're striving, you're repenting of your sins, and you, you wonder, is it worth it? What, will it? what will it really turn out to be like at the end? Well, look at the way God fulfills his promises here. Just in one kind of small chapter of Luke, the birth of John, we see the Lord keeps his promises. He doesn't fail to keep one word. The Lord is faithful. Keep going. We also see that even failures can be faithful. Right? It seems like Zechariah must have been waiting for 40 weeks to get that tablet out and write, his name is John. I know this one. His name is John. His name is John. Right? He's had 40 weeks or more just to beat himself up. Right? I was in the temple. I was there. you know, And the ball just rolled right through my legs. I missed it. But finally, finally, he can exhibit his faith in what Gabriel said. And his tongue is loose. And so finally we get, we get the response that we really wanted after that first appearance with Zechariah's prophecy in verse 67. Let's read that. 
And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. As we read this prophecy, it's noteworthy that it's not really that much about John. Right? It, and think we see perhaps why the Lord made Zechariah wait. Right? This is a prophecy that's all about what God is doing through Jesus. Right? He says, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. Zechariah is rejoicing because God has remembered his covenant. Yes, he's thankful that his son will play a role, but he's even more thankful for the bigger thing that God is doing. He addresses these, these tender words to his son, you child, will prepare the way for the Lord, for what the Lord will do. And what will the Lord do? He will show his tender mercy. Instead of John being the prophet that comes before the great and awesome, terrible judgment, John comes to prepare the way for the Lord's tender mercy, for the forgiveness of sins, to prepare the way for God to shine a light on those who are in the darkness and in the shadow of death, to prepare the way for the one who will guide his people's feet in the way of peace. The hope that does not disappoint is found in Jesus. He is the light that shines. You know, the people in this story, they hear things that are truly amazing. And that, that's really where the focus is. I mean, they do get to see John born, but really it's a, it's a hearing chapter. They hear what God is going to do. They, they hear that the light is about to dawn in Christ. They hear that mercy, God's tender mercy, is going to be poured out. And we see they all wonder and are amazed and praise God. They rejoiced at what they heard. It was the culmination of a lifetime of waiting. And their waiting was rewarded by the tender mercies of God. Now we have the great blessing of living after the full revelation of Jesus, after the tender mercies of God were, have been poured out on us through Jesus crucified and risen and exalted, we know the great things that have happened among us, that God accomplished. And so we have even more reason to wait on the Lord and be confident 
that he will keep his promises to us. We know that through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is indeed with us. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us, the gift of our risen Lord. He is with us. We know that in an ultimate sense, God's light has displaced the darkness, right? That was what Psalm 139 told us. Darkness is not darkness to the Lord. His light pierces it. And so we know we are alive in him. And so whatever suffering we're enduring, whatever sin we're struggling against, Luke chapter 1 tells us, keep going, keep waiting, keep your eyes fixed on the God-man who came to take your place on the cross and who lives so that you can have life. The Lord restores what his people lack. The Lord gives what we can never have expected. He comes himself to take away our sins and to bring us safely home to glory. And so we can now let faltering yet faithful Zechariah be our worship leader. And we can say, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. And by the tender mercies of God, Christ is with us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take off the blinders from our eyes that keep us from seeing that you are with us. When we are broken down by our suffering and our sin, help us to know that in Christ you love us. In Christ you have taken away our reproach and shame. In Christ you have paid for our sin. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see Christ that you give us endurance to keep pressing on by faith. Father, we thank you for this miracle of the incarnation, that you did what no one could have expected you to do. In Christ, God came down, and you took the punishment we deserve. Help us, Father, to, to live with the, with the joy of Zechariah and Mary. Help us to live rejoicing in your salvation, and knowing that you remember your mercy, that you keep all your promises. We thank you that we can pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.